Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, A Natural History of Mars, with Simon Morden and his new book, the Red Planet. Dr. Simon Morden, trained as a planetary geologist and geophysicist, realised he was never going to get to space and decided to write about it instead. His award-winning writing career blends narrative science, science fiction, fantasy and horror. He is a past winner of the Philip K. Dick Memorial Award for his Metro Zone series of novels, set in post-apocalyptic London, and the Rolls-Royce Science Prize for School Science Education. And today we're going to be talking about Simon's latest book, which is The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars. Simon, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me on. Tell us first then, I guess, the why a book about Mars question, but you've got more personal reasons for, for having an interest in Mars. So tell us why Mars. Sure. So the prosaic answer is that one of my old editors from fiction writing had moved publishers and was now at Elliot and Thompson, who published Red Planet. And they were sitting around the editorial desk one day and the question came up, well, Mars is really popular at the moment. There's a lot happening. Who do we know who can write a book about Mars? And my old editor said, hang on a minute, I need to make some phone calls. So in one sense, that's how I ended up writing the book. The more convoluted reason for all of this is because of a a mistake I made back when I was a scientist. To give you some background, I was working on meteorites and I'd moved on to what are called achondritic meteorites. They look like uh, terrestrial basaltic rocks, uh, except they are formed in space. NASA has a catalogue of meteorites, which you can run your finger down and pick a meteorite to study. And if they like the cut of your jib, they will send you some. I picked this meteorite because there was plenty of it, and they weren't going to worry about handing it over to a very junior researcher to test destructively. I was looking for the magnetic properties of these meteorites, and this meteorite wasn't giving me the right signals. The mineral structure of it was all wrong, and I put it to one side, uh, wrote a, a probably a brief note on it, sent it back saying, sorry, this is just rubbish. 
it's obviously contaminated and I can't do the science on it. Apologies. Six months later, I realized why that meteorite wasn't any good for me. And it was because a study had come out on the same meteorite from some researchers in Japan working on oxygen isotopes. And they said, basically, the oxygen isotopes on this meteorite are really weird, but they resemble the ones that come from Mars. So I had all of the information that I needed from this meteorite to make that call. And because I couldn't possibly imagine in any way, shape or form that NASA would send me a incredibly rare piece of Mars, I just missed it. I just missed it completely. So it's haunted me ever since. And getting to write this book has provided me with an enormous amount of closure. Well, that's not all for that meteorite, because it turns out that that's also an incredibly famous meteorite that lots of people will have heard of and probably seen photographs of. Yeah, so this was ALH 84001. That signification means it comes from the Allen Hills area of Antarctica. Uh, It was picked up in 1984, and it was the first one they picked up that year. And everybody will know it as the one that may or may not contain tiny fossilized remains of bacteria. Jury is very much out on that. But yeah, it was that one. And and that's probably a good reason to kick myself even harder. There's a chapter at the beginning of the book called Mars as an Unreliable Narrator. And Mars is, you know, it's one of the four rocky planets in the inner solar system. But it's weird. It's different in significant ways from not necessarily Mercury, but certainly Venus and Earth to more familiar rocky planets. What's so weird about Mars? Amongst the Martian weirdness, we can talk about the crust for a start. Mars's crust is a single piece, a solid lid across the whole planet. So there's no plate tectonics. And that means that the crust of Mars is pretty much as old as the planet itself. On Earth, the crust continually renews itself. Oceanic crust is barely a blink of an eye. It can be freshly minted tomorrow. The oldest oceanic crust is probably, what, two, three hundred million years old. All of the Martian crust is at least four and a half billion years old, uh, which means that it has recorded literally every event that ever happened to it. And this this can cause all manner of problems because rather than seeing, you know, well, we've got this mountain range forming here and we've got this, this ocean trench here and the normal cycle of planetary crust, we just have layers and layers of information, some of which we have irrevocably lost in the mists of time because the crust is so incredibly ancient that some of that early information has just gone. It's just evaporated. It's been buried. And we don't know anything from that early past. We're in the point of conjecture there. We know what we end up with, but we really don't know how it got there. We have theories and and that's about it. We've completed very um, thorough mapping of Mars now. 
And something that had never occurred to me before I read your book was that, you know, if I'm on Earth and I want to map something, I know that, say, Mount Everest is so many feet above sea level and the, the Dead Sea is so many feet below sea level and, you know, the Mariana Trench is even more feet literally below sea level. But how do you do that sort of measuring on a planet where there isn't a sea? So we've given Mars something called the datum. And we have measured Mars sufficiently well so that we can average it out. Uh, We can take all the high points and all the low points and make an average-shaped Mars. Everything above that average-shaped Mars is higher than the datum, and everything that is lower than that average-shaped Mars is lower than the datum. So that's that's Mars's sea level, this average Mars. And it produces some extraordinary differences in height. Olympus Mons is 24 kilometers above datum. And to give you some idea, Everest is just under nine kilometers above sea level. The lowest point is the Hellas Crater, which is four kilometers below datum. That's not as impressive as Earth. Our Challenger Deep goes down 11 kilometers below sea level. But we've got a variation of 28 kilometers between the highest point of Mars and the lowest point of Mars. And we only recently measured the height of Mars. I think it was uh, early 2000s with the MOLA instrument, Martian Observatory Laser Altimeter, uh, which basically surveyed the entire of Mars and gave us its variation in height. You talk about the early formation of the solar system, how the planets, you know, accreted bigger and bigger pieces of rock or gas or dust out of the uh, out of a cloud, and you know, eventually formed themselves. Mars, in its very early years, also you mentioned that obviously the crust of Mars is billions of years old and is relatively unchanging, but in its early days, it was melting and reforming and melting and reforming. Tell us something about that. So Mars, when it formed, it formed relatively early. And one thing that we have to, we have to remember is that the, the whole of the planetary formation bit, once that cloud of debris forms and, and it's rotating and there are bits of material that are falling inwards towards the centre of where the sun will eventually form. And you've got this this rotating disk of debris, dust and gas that is banging into each other in fairly elliptical orbits uh, and heating itself up. That whole process is remarkably quick. It's been judged that from the first real solid matter in the solar system to planetary formation is something like 150,000 years. So it's not long at all. So you've got a lot of activity, you've got a lot of crashing and banging going on. And the elements, the material that form, that is in this disk tends to be gradated. Um, so close to the protosun, it's quite hot and it drives out all of the, the volatile gases, the, the ices and the, the carbon dioxides and the methanes and things like that. 
and it pushes those to the outside of the disk. So that's why we end up with the rocky planets in the center. But Mars, where it formed, fourth planet out, it was quite close to the place what we call the snow line. And that's the position in that early accretion disk where the volatiles actually form loose clumps of ice. Basically, it's like sort of, you know, little snowballs forming out in the disk. So when Mars formed, it was the same from the crust to its very middle. It was a, a mixture of things called chondrules, which are little glassy blebs of silicate material. It was formed from bigger lumps of rock that had formed from other material and had been since broken apart. And it had flecks of raw iron nickel alloy in it. And it had some of these icy, sort of snowball-y type things. I mean, arguably sort of dirty comet style material. But one thing that was also included in this material were some very short-lived radioactive elements. And they, as they decay, produce heat. If you imagine a small lump of, of this material, it's producing a certain amount of heat and it radiates through the surface. So, you know, a lump of this material will be warm to the touch. And that's fine as long as the heat can escape. But if you've got a planet which is over six and a half thousand kilometers across and it's formed really quite quickly so that those radioactive elements don't have time to decay completely and push their heat out into space, that heat is going to start to accumulate. And because these elements have got a half-life of 10,000 years or so, they are banging out the heat quite quickly, quickly enough that that heat will not just accumulate, but it will accelerate. You've got all of this layer of these layers of rock, and it will heat up fast enough, initially in the middle, to melt the planet. And that melting goes from the inside and it goes all the way to the outside. As it melts, the metals sink to the middle and that gravitational fall produces its own form of energy. So the whole, whole system is a runaway. And very early on, same thing happened with Earth and we believe with Venus and Mercury as well, that the planet will literally be molten from core to surface. So one big ball of lava. It must have been a, a rare sight to see. But the other consequence of that, of course, is that because you've got ice and gas frozen and entrained in the material that made Mars, that gas is going to come out because there is literally nothing stopping it from doing so now. It's going to, it's, you know, Mars is at a thousand degrees centigrade and that gas is going to boil. So you're going to get geysers and a very early atmosphere of Mars as well formed from those ices and gases. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Simon Morden, and we're talking about his new book, The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars. And Simon, another way that Mars is weird in comparison to other planets we may know is something that scientists call the Great Dichotomy. Tell us, tell us what this means. Okay, so we didn't realise this to start off with. We knew what Mars looked like, even from... Schiaparelli's very basic maps, and he was working with brass telescopes and hand-ground lenses at this point in the 19th century. But even he could work out that the top half of Mars seemed to be of a different quality to the bottom half of Mars. When we, when we got there, when we, we sent our, our mariner probes out there, we could see that the top half of Mars was basically flatter and less interesting than the the southern part which had many more craters and was was generally sort of brighter than the the flatter plains of the north but it was only when we measured the height of mars that we could actually see what was going on and and it's not just a difference in the quality of the terrain it is an actual physical difference in height so the flat plains of the north of Mars are actually lower by about four or five kilometers than the highlands of Mars, which are in the south. And there has to be an explanation for this. It looks really strange. And, and moreover, it doesn't just look strange. When you do a gravity map of Mars, it's not that just the surface is lower, but the crust itself is thinner. So the crust in the north is around 25 to 30 kilometers thick. The crust in the south is about double 
that. So you're looking at sort of 50 to 70 kilometers. It's an extraordinary difference. And we don't see it anywhere else in the, in the solar system. It begs an explanation. And of which there are two, inevitably, and we can't make out which one's the right one. The first is a very Goldilocks series of coincidences in that a early formed protoplanet, which hadn't been absorbed by one of the larger planets, collided with Mars very early on, but at slow speeds and an oblique angle, so that it basically just dumped all of the material that was in the north, and it moved it to the south. So it just basically knocked the top half of Mars off and piled it up around the other half. The other explanation is the mantle plume theory. Now, because Mars formed hot, the heat has to go somewhere. And on Earth, what happens is that the heat from the core flows up through the mantle. And the mantle itself, even though it is solid rock at this point, starts to flow like wax, like plastic, like pitch. And it moves at a few centimeters a year, but it moves that heat by convection from the core to the crust. When it reaches the crust, it pushes against the bottom of the crust. That's how we get our plate tectonics, these cracked pieces of crust moving along, propelled by these mantle plumes. Mars, we think, only had one mantle plume, possibly because it was smaller, possibly because it was colder. But if you model one mantle plume for the crust of Mars, you end up pushing material onto one part of the crust and peeling it off at 180 degrees as those the mantle flow is cooling and comes back down again. So you end up with one part of the crust being really thick and one part of the crust being quite thin. So that latter explanation is probably my favourite. I mean, I don't think I should have favourite theories, but I think that's a more satisfying explanation than the impact theory itself. One of the consequences of the um, the north of the planet being like lots, you know, lower and flatter than the rest of the planet is that uh, you paint a picture of at one time when the whole of the north of of Mars was one vast sea. Tell us about there's multiple times in history where Mars has probably had a lot of water and then that's gone and then it's gone back again a bit less and then gone and come back again a bit less. But tell us what Mars would have looked like if we could have seen it covered in water. Sure. So we know from our investigations on on isotopes and things like that, that Mars once had a significant atmosphere. And that atmosphere was made up of a mixture of carbon dioxide and water vapour. As far as we can tell, Mars never had any significant amounts of oxygen. So this, this carbon dioxide water vapor atmosphere, which was initially huge, uh, we're talking something which is probably two planetary radiuses out from the crust, from the surface of Mars, um, with a surface pressure of two to 300 bars and a temperature to match. So no free water on, on the surface of Mars to start off with. But because Mars is a small planet, surface gravity is a third of Earth's, 
and it weighs a tenth of the mass of the Earth. Um, there was no way that Mars was going to keep hold of that atmosphere. And allied to that, as far as, again, we can tell, the magnetic field on Mars failed very early on. So that atmosphere is going to get stripped down by both just loss and by the solar wind. As the atmosphere shrank, it cooled. And as it cooled, it started to rain. And the one thing we know about rain is that it flows downhill. And downhill on Mars is pretty much in one direction, and that is north. So all of that water ends up collecting in the north part of Mars. And we can only estimate how, how much water there was. Some people say there wasn't much, and I will ignore them because it's nowhere near as romantic as a nice deep ocean. So Mars probably had an ocean of between one and two kilometers deep that stretched from pretty much the equator and across the pole, because there's no land at the pole for an ice cap to form. And, and at those times, then there, it would have been plenty warm enough for there to be no ice caps. So there would have been an ocean from equator across the top of the pole to the other side, and it would have literally have girdled the planet. There would have been lakes in the south. You've got some major craters. There's Hellas and, and a few others. They would have been full of water as well. But the whole north of Mars would have just been this vast ocean. And there would have been weather. There would have been storms. There would have been clouds. And it would have been a really quite scary place. Um, we know from Earth, the Southern Ocean itself is very windy because there's no land to get in the way, particularly. And it would have been like that on Mars. There would have been horrendous storms, but those storms would have blown inland to the south and it would have rained and that water would have, would have literally have just gushed straight back into the ocean, filling up again. Mars has two moons and they are very different and weirder than our own moon. So tell us something about Phobos and Deimos, Mars's two moons. Phobos and Deimos are rubbish moons um and as there's only you can only really say that they have absolutely no effect at all on the surface they are very small and they are very light no one quite knows how they formed whether they are indigenous to mars whether or not they formed from an impact that happened on the surface of mars and the debris is thrown into orbit which then coalesces as moon or whether or not they are simply captured asteroids. The things we know about Phobos and Deimos are that they are incredibly light. They are and not just when I say light, I mean they're not very dense at all. They're barely rock. And one of the curious things about the whole uh, Phobos and Deimos thing is that Phobos is moving towards Mars. So however it formed, wherever it formed, Phobos is moving towards Mars. And at some point, it will reach the Roche limit, which means that the tidal forces from Mars will start to break up the moon. Uh, it will start to, to shatter the rock, uh, such as it is, and drag it into a debris ring around itself, which will then eventually dissipate. Deimos is the other side of that gravity line. It is moving away from Mars. 
So again, however it falls, Mars will eventually lose both Phobos and Deimos. One of the extraordinary things about Phobos is that it is so light that the size and shape of Phobos can be explained by a roughly a metre thick iron hull with nothing in the middle. That works out. And a Russian scientist back in the 50s, when we discovered that Mars had a moon and worked out how big it was and what its mass was, seriously proposed that Phobos was an alien artifact, either um, left over from the, from the great Martian empire, or it was a visiting spaceship now in, in orbit around Mars. And because we didn't have any good pictures, no one could actually gainsay him on this. So that theory stood for a good 30 years or so before we actually got proper pictures of Phobos. But no, unfortunately, it's, it's not an alien spaceship. It's just a, a regular battered old piece of space rock. One more thing we haven't really talked about. The book is it's structured through the various different geological ages of Mars, which are called the, the Noachian, Hesperian and Amazonian ages. And through that, you talk about the various changes to the surface, the, the various bombardments, the, change, the water, the changes in the atmosphere, changes in the climate. And one thing that's quite surprising that comes out of that is the the planet that we all know. We can see it literally in the sky. It looks red. And the book is called The Red Planet. But Mars wasn't always red. In fact, the redness is, is a you know, in geological terms, a relatively recent thing. So tell us when Mars became red and why it's red to finish it off. Mars is known for its volcanoes. And the one thing we know about volcanoes is, is you know, they produce lava. And, and in, in the case of Mars, there is an awful lot of lava. And that lava, when it comes out, is generally black. So, so Mars, for the vast majority of its past, even when there's blue sky and blue ocean, the land is going to be black. It's going to be shades of black, shades of grey, and that's pretty much it. So the redness, the redness itself comes from the volcanic dust that's formed. When you have volcanoes, things explode, you have pumice, and that gets turned into a very fine powdery ash. That ash contains all of the, the volcanic minerals, and then it also includes the mineral magnetite, which is an iron oxide. But magnetite itself is black. Mars doesn't have any free oxygen, so it can't gain an oxygen to turn into the very familiar red iron oxide hematite. So how did it do it? Well, as again, as far as we can tell, someone did a, an absolutely cracking experiment. If you take basically a bucket of magnetite, seal it up and shake it for a very long time, you can physically move the oxygen um, atoms around in that matrix. So you can physically convert by shaking black magnetite to red hematite. And the thing that Mars has in abundance is time. So you've got these great drifts of volcanic ash forming as the oceans dry up and disappear. And the wind then picks up this ash and blows it around the planet. Each time one of those particles hits the ground, there will be an impact. And 
every impact has a chance of turning one of those little bits of magnetite into a piece of hematite. You stretch that out over a three billion year history and the dust of Mars goes from being pretty much all rock fragments, including magnetite, to about 20% hematite. And like I say, you've got three billion years to do this in. It's plenty of time. If we can literally shake some magnetite on Earth for a couple of months and turn a little bit of it into hematite, three billion years of storms and bits of, of volcanic ash being carried in the wind on Mars, it's more than enough to turn the planet red. So I've been talking to Simon Morden. We've been talking about his new book, The Red Planet, A Natural History of Mars, which is out in the UK now from Elliot and Thompson. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. No problem at all. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.